Hello listeners, it's your storyteller. It's 4.30 in the morning. This is the only time I can record without being interrupted. My phone's about to die, so I have to make this short and sweet. We are reading Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Ronnie. trying for 15 minutes that's it 15 minutes before I fall asleep cool all right 15 minutes that's all I need let's do it we all know what book I'm reading and bye My God, my God, I said to myself, it's the children's crusade. The colonel asked old Derby how he had been captured, and Derby told a tale of a clump of trees, about a hundred over frightened soldiers. The battle had been going on for five days. A hundred had been driven into the trees by tanks. Derby described the incredible artificial weather that earthlings sometimes create for other earthlings when they don't want the other earthlings to inhabit the earth anymore. Shells were bursting in the treetops with terrific bangs, he said, lowering his knives and needles and razor blades. Little lumps of lead and copper jackets were crisscrossing the woods under shell bursts, zipping along much faster than sound. A lot of people were being killed or wounded. So it goes. Then the shelling stopped, and a hidden German with a loudspeaker told the Americans to put their weapons down, come out of the woods with their hands on top of their heads, and the shelling, or the shelling would stop, start again. It wouldn't stop until everyone there was dead. So the Americans put their weapons down, They came out of the woods with their hands on top of their heads because they wanted to go on living, if they possibly could. Billy traveled back in time to the veterans' hospital again, blanket over his head. It was quiet outside the blanket. Is my mother gone? said Billy. Yes. Billy peeked out from under his blanket. His fiancée was now sitting there. In the visitor's chair. Her name was Valencia Marble. Valencia was the daughter of the owner of the Ilium School of Optometry, and she was rich. She was as big as a house because she couldn't stop eating. She was eating now. She was eating a Three Musketeers candy bar. She was wearing trifocal lens and harlequin frames, and the frames were trimmed with rhinestones. The glitter of the rhinestones were answered by the glitter of the diamond in her engagement ring. The diamond that had been insured for $1,800. Billy had found the diamond in Germany. It was a booty of ore. 
Billy didn't want to marry ugly Valencia. She was one of the symptoms of his disease. He knew he was going crazy when he heard himself propose marriage to her, when he begged her to take the diamond ring and be his companion for life. Billy said hello to her, and she asked if she wanted some candy, and he said no thanks. She asked him if, how he was. He said, much better, thanks. She said everybody in the optometry school was sorry he was sick and hoped he would be well soon. And Billy said, when you see them, say hello. She promised she would. She asked him if there was anything she could bring him from the outside. And he said, no, I have everything I want. What about books? Said Valencia. I'm right next to the biggest private libraries in the world, said Billy meaning Elliot Rosewater's collection of science fiction. Rosewater was on the next bed, reading, and Billy drew him into the conversation and asked him if he was reading this time. And Rosewater told him it was the Gospel from Outer Space by Kilgore Trout. It was a visitor from outer space, shaped much like a Tramadorian, visitor from outer space made a serious study of Christianity to learn, if he could, why Christians found it so easy to be cruel. He concluded that the last part of the trouble was slipshot storytelling in the New Testament. He supposed that the intent of the Gospels was to teach people, among, among other things, to be merciful even to the lowest of the low. But the Gospels actually taught this. Before you go kill somebody, make him he make sure he isn't well connected. So it goes. The flaw in the Christ, in the Christ stories, said the visitor from outer space, was that Christ didn't look like much. He was actually the son of the most powerful being in the universe. Readers understood that. So, when they came to the crucifixion, they naturally thought, and Rosewater read out loud, Oh boy, they sure picked the wrong guy to lynch this time. And what he thought, he had a brother. There are those right people to lynch. Who? People not well connected. So it goes. The visitor from outer space made a gift to earth of a new gospel. In it, Jesus was really a nobody and a pain in the ass to a lot of people with better connections than he had. He still, had, he still got to say all the lovely and puzzling things that he got to say in the gospels. So the people amused themselves by nailing him to the cross and planting the cross in the ground and there couldn't possibly be any repercussions, the lynchers thought. The reader would have thanked that too, since the gospel hammered it home again. And again, and nobody, Jesus was. And then just before the nobody died, the heavens opened up and there was thunder and lightning and the voice of God came crashing down. He told the people 
that he was adopting the bum as his son, giving him full powers and privilege of the son of the creator of the universe throughout all eternity. And God says, from this moment on, he will punish horribly anybody who torments a bum who has no connections. Billy's fiance had finished her Three Musketeers candy bar. She was now eating a milky way. Forget books, said Rosewater, throwing them under his bed. To hell with them! That sounded like an interesting one, said Valencia. Jesus, if Kilgore Trout could only write, Rosewater exclaimed. He had a point. Kilgore Trout's unpopularity was well deserved. His prose was frightful. Only his ideas were good. I don't think Trout had ever been out of the country, Rosewater went on. My God, he writes about earthlings all the time. They're all American. Practically nobody on earth is an American. Where does he live? Valencia asked. Nobody knows, Rosewater replied. There's only one person who's ever heard of them, as far as I can tell. No two books have the same publisher, and every time I write him in care of the publisher, the letter comes back because the publisher had failed. He had changed the subject now, congratulating Valencia on her engagement ring. Oh, thank you, she said, and held it out so Rosewater could get a better look. Billy got the diamond in the war. That is the attractive thing about war, said Rosewater. Everybody gets a little something. In regard to the whereabouts of Kilgore Trout, he actually lived in Ilium, Billy's hometown, friendless and despised. He would meet them by and by. Billy, said Valencia Marble. Hmm? Do you want to talk about our silver pattern? Sure. I've got it narrowed down pretty much to either Royal Danish Rambler Rose. Rambler Rose, said Billy. Well, this isn't something we need to rush into, she said. I mean, whatever we decide on, we're going to have to live with the rest of our lives. Billy studied the picture. Royal Danish, she said at last. Colonial Midnight is nice, too. Yes, it is, said Billy Pilgrim. And Billy Pilgrim traveled in time to the zoo on Trafamador. He was 44 years old, on display under the geodesic dome. He was reclining in a lounge chair, which had been his cradle through the trip through space. He was naked. The Trafamadorians were interested in the body. All of it. There were thousands of them outside holding up their little hands so that their eyes could see them. Billy had been on Trafamador for six earthling months now. He was used to the crowd. Escape was out of the question. The atmosphere in the dome was cyanide, and Earth was 44,120,000,000,000 miles away. Billy was displayed there in the zoo in a simulated earthling habit. Most furnitures had been stolen from the Sears and Roebuck warehouse 
in Iowa City. There's a color television set and a couch that be converted into a bed. There were end tables with lamps and ashtrays by them on the couch. There was a home bar with stools and a little pool table. There was a wall-to-wall carpeting in federal gold, except in the kitchen and the bathroom areas, and over the manhole covers in the center of the floor. There were magazines arranged in a fan on the coffee table in front of the couch. There was a stereophonic phonograph. Phonographed work. The television did not. There was a picture of one cowboy shooting the other cowboy pasted to the television tube. So it goes. There were no walls in the dome, no place for Billy to hide. The mint green bathroom fixtures were right out in the open. Billy got off his lounge chair now and went to the bathroom and took a leak, and the crowd went wild. Billy brushed his teeth on Trafamador, put in his partial denture, went into the kitchen, bottled gas range and his refrigerator, and his dishwasher were mint green, too. There was a picture painted on the door of the refrigerator. The refrigerator come that way. It was a picture of a gay 90s couple on a bicycle built for two. Billy looked up at the picture now, Tried to see something about the couple. Nothing came to him. There didn't seem to be anything about these two people. Billy ate a good breakfast from cans, washed his cup and plate and knife and fork and spoon and saucepan and put them away. He did exercises when he learned the army straddle push-ups, the deep knee bends, sit-ups and push-ups. The Trophamidorians had no way of knowing Billy's body, face, was not beautiful. They supposed he was a splendid specimen. This had been a pleasant effort on Billy. He began to enjoy his body for the first time. He showered after his exercises and trimmed his toenails. He shaved and sprayed deodorant under his arms while the zoo guide on a raised platform explain what Billy was doing and why. The guide was lecturing telepathically, simply standing there, sending out thought waves to the crowd. On the platform with him was a little keyboard instrument that would relay questions to Billy from the crowd. Now the first question came from the speaker on the television set. Are you happy here? About as happy as I was on Earth, said Billy Pilgrim, which is true. There were five sexes on Trough Amador, each of them performing a step necessary in the creature of a new individual. They looked identically to Billy because their sex differences were all in the fourth dimension. One of the biggest moral bombshells handed to Billy by the Trough Amadorians, incidentally had to do with sex on Earth. They said their flying saucer crews identified no fewer than seven on Earth, each essential to reproduction. Again, Billy couldn't possibly imagine what five of those seven sexes actually had to do with making a baby. Since they were sexually active, 
only in the fourth dimension. The Trifamidorians tried to give Billy clues that would help him imagine sex in the invisible dimension. He told him there would be no earthling babies without male homosexuals, and there could be no babies without female homosexuals, and there could be no babies without women over 65, and there could be no babies without men over 65. There could be no babies without other babies who had lived an hour or less after birth so on. It was gibberish to Billy. There was a lot that Billy said was gibberish to the Trophamidorians, too. He couldn't imagine what time looked like to them. Billy had given up on explaining that. The guide outside had to explain the best he could. The guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across the desert at a mountain range on a day that there was twinkling bright and clear. And they took a peek at the bird or cloud, stone in front of them. But among this poor earthling, his head was encased in a sphere, steel sphere, which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole which he could look, and welded one eye hole with six feet of pipe. This was the only beginning. This was the only beginning of Billy's miseries in the war. In the metaphor. He was also trapped in a steel lattice which bolted to a flat car on rails. There's no way he could turn his head or touch the pipe. The, front, the far end of the pipe rested on the bipod, which was bolted to the flat car. All Billy could see was a dot at the end of the pipe. He didn't know about that he was on a flat car. He didn't know about anything particular about this situation. The flat car sometimes crept, sometimes went extremely fast, often stopped, went uphill, downhill, around curves, along straightaways. And whatever poor Billy saw in the pipe, he had no choice but to say to him, That's life. Billy expected the Trophamidorians to be baffled and alarmed by all the wars and the other forms of murder on the earth. They expected him to fear the earthling combination of ferocity, the spectacular weaponry that might eventually destroy part, maybe all, of the innocent universe science fiction and led him to expect that. But the subject of the war had never came up until Billy brought it up himself. Someone in the zoo crowd asked him though, through the lecture, what was the most valuable thing he had learned on Trophamador so far? And Billy replied, how the inhabitants of the entire planet can live in peace. I as you know, and from a planet that has been engaged in senseless slaughter since the beginning of time. I myself have seen bodies of school book girls who were boiled alive by a water tower by my own countrymen, who were proud of fighting pure evil at the time. This was true. Billy saw boiled bodies in Dresden. I have lit my way and in prison 
night with candles from the fat of human beings who were butchered by the brothers and fathers of those schoolgirls who were boiled. The earthlings must be the terrors of the universe. If all other planets now and agents of Earth, they soon will be. So tell me the secret. Do I take back to Earth and save us all? How can a planet live in peace? He felt that he had spoken sorely. He baffled when he saw where the Tralfamidors closed their little hands on their eyes. He knew from past experience that this meant he was being stupid. Would you, would you mind telling my, me, he said to the guide, much dis- deflated, what is so stupid about that? We know how the universe ends, says the guide, and Earth has nothing to do with it except that it gets wiped out. And uh, how does the universe end, said Billy? We blow it up, experimenting with new fuels of our flying saucers. A Trifamidorian test pilot presses a starter button, and the whole universe disappears. So it goes. Well, if you know this, said Billy, isn't there some way you can prevent it? Keep the pilot from pressing the button? He has always pressed it, and he always will. We will always let him. We will always, always let him. The moment is structured that way. So, said Billy, gropingly, I suppose the idea of preventing war on Earth is stupid then. Of course. But you have such a peaceful planet here. Today we do. On other days, we have wars horrible as anything you had ever seen or read about. There isn't anything we can do about them. We simply don't look at them. We ignore them. We spend entire eternity looking at pleasant moments like today in the zoo. Isn't this a nice moment? Yes. That's one of the things Earthling might learn to do. If they were hard, they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Oh. Shortly after he went to sleep that night, Billy traveled in time to another moment, which was quite nice. His wedding night with the former Valencia Merville. He had been out of the veterans hospital for six months. He was all well. He had graduated from the Ilium School of Optometry, third, in a class of 47. Now he was in bed with Valencia in a delightful studio apartment that was built on the end of the wharf on Cape Ann, Massachusetts. Across the water were lights of Gloucester. Billy was on the top of Valencia, making love to her. One result of this act would be the birth of Robert Pilgrim, who would become a problem in high school, but would be straightened out and become a member of the famous Green Berets. Valencia was not a time time traveler, but she did have a lively imagination. While Billy was making love to her, she imagined she was the first woman on history. She was being Queen Elizabeth, 
first of England, Billy, supposedly Christopher Columbus. Billy made a noise like a small rusty hinge, and he had just emptied his seminal vesicles in Valencia and contributed his chair, chair of the Green Beret. According to the Traformadorians, of course, the Green Beret would have served seven parents in all. mother said the pilgrims were coming up in the world. The honeymoon was taking place in the bittersweet mysteries of an Indian summer in New England. The lover's apartment was one of the romantic walls in which the all French doors. They opened into the balcony and the oil harbor below. The green an orange dragger, black in the night, grumbled and drummed past their balcony, not thirty feet from the wedding bed. It was going to be with its only running lights on. It was empty holds were resonant, made song of the engines, rich and loud. The wharf began to sing the same song. Then the honeymooner's bed sang too, and it continued to sing long after the the dragger was gone. Thank you, said Valencia at last. The headboard was singing a mosquito song. You're welcome. It was nice. I'm glad. And then she began to cry. What is the matter? I... I'm just so happy. Good. I never thought anybody would marry me. Mm-hmm. Said Billy Pilgrim. I'm going to lose weight for you, she said. What? I'm going on a diet. I'm going to be become more beautiful for you. I like you just the way you are. Do you really? Really, said Billy Pilgrim. He had already seen a lot of his marriage, thanks to time travel, and he knew it was going to be at least bearable all the way. A great motor yacht named Schicksalzy now slid past the marriage bed. Its song on his engines sang was very low organ note. All of her lights were on. Two beautiful people, a young man and a young woman in evening clothes, with the rails at the stem, loving each other, their dreams and the wake. They were honeymooning too. They were Lance Rumford, Newport, Rhode Island, and his bride, former Cynthia Landry, who has been the child's sweetheart, John F. Kennedy, of Highness Port, Massachusetts. There was a coincidence here. Pilly would later share in a hospital room when Rumford's uncle, 
Professor Bertram Copeland Rumford of Harvard, official historian of the New England, the United States Air Force. When the beautiful people were passed, Valencia questioned her funny-looking husband about war. It was a simple-minded thing for a female earthling to do, to associate sex and the glamour with war. What do you ever think about the war? She said, laying a hand on his thigh. Sometimes. When I look at you, sometimes, said Valencia, I get a funny feeling that you're full of secrets. I am not, said Billy. This was a lie, of course. He hadn't told anybody about his time traveling he had done, about Trafamador and so on. You must have secrets about the war. Not secrets, I guess. But things you don't want to talk about. No. I'm proud you were a soldier. Did you know that? Good. Was it awful? Sometimes. A crazy thought now occurred to Billy. The truth of it startled out of him. It would make a good epitaph for Billy Pilgrim and for me too. Would you talk about the war now? I wanted you to, said Valencia. In a tiny cavity in her great body, she was assembling the materials for a green beret. It would sound like a dream, said Billy. Other people's dreams aren't usually very interesting. I heard you tell Father one time about the German firing squad, and he was referring to the execution of poor Edgar Derby. Um, you had to bury him? Yes. Did he see you with your shovels before he was shot? Yes. Did he say anything? No. Was he scared? They had doped him up. He was sort of glassy-eyed. Did they pin a target on him? A piece of paper, said Billy. He got out of bed, excuse me, went into the darkness of the bathroom to take a leak. He groped for the light and realized he felt rough while that he had traveled back to 1944 to the prison hospital again. The candle of the hospital had gone out. Poor old Billy Edgar had fallen asleep on the cot next to Billy. Billy was out of bed, groping on a wall, trying to find a way out because he wanted to take a leak so badly. He found a door which opened and let him reel out into the prison night. Billy was loony with time travel and morphine. He had delivered himself into a barbed wire fence which had snagged him in a dozen places. Billy tried to back away from the barbs, but they wouldn't let go. So Billy did a silly little dance with the fence, taking a step this way and that, and then returning and beginning again. The Russian himself, out in the night to take his another leap, saw Billy dancing from the other side of the fence, and he came over to the curious scarecrow that might talk to it gently and ask what country it was from. The scarecrow paid no attention, went on dancing. 
The Russian undid the snags one by one, and the scarecrow danced off into the night without a word of thanks. The Russian waved to him, and after him, in Russian, goodbye. nothing better to do, Billy shuffled in their direction. He wondered what tragedy so many had found to lament out the doors. Billy was approaching, without knowing it, the back of the little train. It consisted of one rail fence with twelve buckets underneath it. The fence was sheltered on three sides by a screen of scrap lumber and flattened tin cans. The open face the black tar paper wall of the shed where the feast had taken place. Billy moved along the screen and reached the point where he could see the message freshly painted on the tar paper wall. The words were written in the same pink paint which would brighten the set for Cinderella. Billy's perceptions were so unreliable that he saw the words as hanging in the air painted on transparent curtain, perhaps, and they were lovely silver dots on the curtains, too. These were not, these were really nail heads holding the tire paper up to the shed. Billy could not imagine how the curtain was supported in nothingness, and who supported the magic curtain and the theatrical grief were part of some religious ceremony he knew nothing about. Here's what the message said. Please leave this latrine as tidy as you found it. Billy looked inside the latrine. The wailing was coming from in there. The place was crammed with Americans who had taken their pants down. The welcome feast had made them sick as volcanoes. The buckets were full or had been kicked over. An American near Billy wailed that he excreted everything but his brains. Moments later, he said, There they go, there they go. He meant his brains. That was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. Billy reeled away from this vision of hell. He passed three Englishmen who were watching the excrement festival from a difference. They were catatonic with disgust. Button your pants, said one as Billy went by. So Billy buttoned his pants. He came to the door of the little hospital by accident. He went through the door and found himself honeymooning again. Going through the bathroom, back to bed, back with his bride on Cape Ann. I missed you, said Valencia. I missed you, said Billy Pilgrim. Billy and Valencia went to sleep nestled like spoons, and Billy traveled back in time to the train ride he had taken in 1944 from the maneuvers in South Carolina to his father's funeral in Ilium. He had not seen Europe or combat yet. This was still in the days of steam locomotives. Billy had to change trains a lot. 
Oh, the trains were slow. The coaches stunk of coal smoke and rationed tobacco and booze and the farts of people eating wartime food. The upholstery of the iron seats were bristly, and Billy couldn't sleep much. He got to sleep soundly when he had only three hours from Ilium. His his legs splayed towards the entrance of the busy dying car. The porter woke him up when the train reached Ilium. Billy staggered off with his duffel bag, and he stood on the station platform next to the porter, trying to wake up. Have a good nap, did we? said the porter. Yes, said Billy. Man, said the porter, you sure had it hard on. At three in the morning, on Billy's morphine night in prison, a new patient was carried to the hospital by two lusty Englishmen, and he was tiny. It was Paul Lazaro, the polka-dotted car thief from Sierra, Illinois. He had been caught stealing cigarettes from under the pillow of an Englishman. The Englishman, half asleep, had broken Lazar's right arm and had knocked him unconscious. The Englishman who had done this was helping carry Lazaro now with his fiery red hair and no eyebrows. He had been in Cinderella's Blue Fairy Godmother in the play. Now he supported his half of Lazaro with one hand while he closed the door behind himself with the other. Doesn't weigh much as a chicken, he said. The Englishman with Lavar's feet was the colonel who had given Billy his knockout shot. The blue fairy godmother was embarrassed and angry, too. If I had known I'd been fighting a chicken, he said, I would have fought so hard. Um, the blue fairy, the blue fairy godmother spoke frankly, and how disgusting all the Americans were. Weak, smelly, self-pitying, a pack of sniveling, dirty, thieving bastards, he said. They're worse than the bleeding Russians. Do you seem a scruffy lot? Colonel agreed. A German major came in now. He considered the Englishmen as close friends. He visited them nearly every day, played games with them, lectured them on German history, played their piano, gave them lessons in conversational German. He told them often of that, if it wasn't in their splendid, civilized company. He would go mad, and his English was perfect. He was apologetic about the Englishman having put up with the American enlisted men. He promised them that they would not be inconvenienced for more than a day or two, that the Americans would soon be shipped to Dresden as contract labor. He had a monograph with him, published by the German Association of Prison Officials. It was a report on the behavior of Germany of American enlisted men as prisoners of war. It was written by a former American who had risen high in German ministry propaganda. His name was Howard W. Campbell, Jr. He would later hang himself 
awaiting trial as a war criminal. So it goes. While the British colonel set Lazar's broken arm and mixed plaster for the cast, the German major translated out long passages from Howard W. Campbell Jr.'s monologue. Campbell had been a fairly well-known playwright at one time, and his opening line was this one. America is the wealthiest nation on earth, but its people are mainly poor, and poor Americans are urged to hate themselves. To quote the American humorist Ken Hubbard, It ain't no disgrace to be poor, but it might as well be. It is, in fact, a crime for American to be poor, even though American is a nation of the poor. Every other nation has folk traditions of men who are poor, but extremely wise and virtuous, and therefore more estimable than anyone with power and gold. No such tales are told by the American poor. They mock themselves and glorify their betters. The meanest eating or drinking establishment owned by a man who himself poor is very likely to have a sign. If you're so smart, why ain't you rich? There will also be an American flag no larger than an American's child's hand glued to a lollipop stick and flying from the cash register. Campbell had been a fairly known playwright at one time. His opening line was this one. America is the wealthiest nation on earth, but its people are mainly poor, and poor Americans are urged to hate themselves. To quote the American humorist Ken Hubbard, It ain't no disgrace to be poor, but it might as well be. It is, in fact, a crime for Americans to be poor, even though America is a nation of poor. Every other nation has folk traditions, men who were poor but extremely wise and virtuous and therefore more estimable than anybody with gold or power. No such tales are told by the American poor. They mock themselves and glorify their betters. The meanest eating or drinking establishment owned by a man who himself is poor is very likely to have a sign on the wall asking his cruel question, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? There will also be an American flag no larger than a child's hand glued on a lollipop stick, and it would be flying from the cash register. Listeners, it is now 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to go to bed because I have to get up in the morning 
walk the damn dog. So, like I said, you got about 10 minutes out of me. And uh, so come back and uh, listen to me read a little bit more of Slaughterhouse 5 at Curve.